This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I'm Jennifer Wells. I'm happy to welcome our guest, author and activist, Trebby Johnson. Welcome, Trebby. Thank you, Jennifer. So it's such a pleasure to meet you, and it's such a pleasure to discover your work. I want to start with the title, Radical Joy for Hard Times. I think it's a brilliant title, and partly because, sadly, it may have relevance for a long time. Um, and even so much that we may have to keep redefining what's hard time and what's radical joy. And perhaps we can touch on that. And for who? Um, so I want to say thank you. I want to start with a really simple, straightforward question, which is, what was the aim of this book? The aim of the book was to express uh, both the importance of noticing and attending to and living with places on earth that are hurt and a kind of an opening of a portal that this is something we're all living with and we don't have to just feel despair and depression and try to avoid them but that there is something positive um, creative communal collaborative and even fun that we can do Mm-hmm. I even fun in the hardest places to me gets a, one of the extraordinary pieces of significance in this work that I see right off the bat, which is articulating problems together with solutions, seeing the toughest things together with our greatest strengths. And when I think of joy, I also think of I think of strength, I think of agency, capacity to do things. So I find that profoundly inspiring. Um, but perhaps to back up a minute, uh, I know this was a major project and a beautiful result. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us the backstory. What led up to this book? Well, the book it took me seven years to write the book, but this the journey to finding the way to what I call these tools, these really simple tools, uh, was took was much earlier. It was actually 1987. And at that time, I was living in New York, and I was producing soundtracks and writing scripts for multimedia shows. And, you know, like they had big screens and lots of slide projectors and uh, sometimes live speakers and music. And sometimes they would be really interesting shows for museums, and sometimes it would be about, like, motivating a sales force for selling new cars. And uh, one for several years in a row, a small group of us, would get a nice sum of money from IBM to create one of these presentations. And it had nothing to do with uh, machine, business machines or computers. It was about getting finding an interesting person or a group of people who had an inspiring message. And then they would have this presentation to thank the sales force. And I would go to the New York Public Library for several days in advance and read a whole lot of new, uh, magazines and newspapers to try and come up with a really good idea. And this one year, I read about a man named David Paulus, who was from the Oneida Nation, and he had received a National Science Foundation grant to recycle steel waste. And uh, so we pitched the idea to IBM, and they liked it, and the client and the technicians and I went up to the Oneida Reservation, and David told me this story when we were interviewing him. He said that he had driven out to the Kaiser Steel Plant in Fontana, and he took two buckets out of his car, and he was going to climb to the top of this mountain and put these the samples from the waste into these buckets so he could take them back to his laboratory and analyze them. So he climbed this mountain. He said it was this huge mountain of iron oxide, just red, compacted, hard stuff. 
and he got to the top, and he was feeling sort of cocky because he was the first Native American ever to get this very prestigious grant. He wasn't even 40 years old. And so he stood there, and he raised his fist up in the air, and he said, I will conquer you. Got the samples. He went back down to his car, and he just said to himself, that's that's not right. That doesn't feel right. Because in the Oneida Nation, before they have any gathering, they have what's called the opening. And a, a member of the community, usually an elder, would call in the stones, the rivers, the birds, the fish, the ancestors, the trees, you know, and just welcome them all. And so he said, I asked the creator to show me the right way of being in relation to the waste. And I heard this. I heard... The waste is not an enemy to be conquered. It is an orphan that has gotten separated from the circle of life. Mm -hmm. And my job is to bring it back to the circle of life. So you know, I thought that was really interesting. And I wrote the script and recorded an actress reading it, Colleen Dewhurst. And it won an award, and everybody liked it. But those words, the waste is an orphan from the circle of life, they just stayed with me. And I wanted to find out what that meant. And so I spent a lot of time asking questions, reading, exploring, trying to get people to pay me to go to programs, which, you know, like people don't necessarily want to go and spend a Saturday afternoon on a cloverleaf of a highway for $50. So um, finally, I founded a nonprofit and then I wrote the book. But it was that it was that search for how do how do we take care of the hurt places? Because that that very idea of the waste being an orphan, it's like it it's it switches our perception of what we think of as a place that's challenged. Absolutely. That's so profound. And I did find myself a couple times in the book, referring back to that phrase, um, waste is an orphan from the cycle of life and feeling really filled with emotion. It's so poignant and it's such a complete reframe. I wonder if you could tell us, just for people who don't know so far, what does the book actually advocate? How does your group bring radical joy uh, to, as you're calling it, wounded places. Just describe it a little bit for people. Okay, well, so my my search as it evolved that I just described, it, it's, it ended up being what are tools that people can use to go to these places? And I was also asking at the same time, is it just me as a white woman who grew up in America um, who with a sort of a, a liberal political bias, um, educated, am I the only one who's going to care about this sort of thing? Because if that's true, then it's not really worth anything. And if it's not true, and if it's more universal, what are the tools that are going to enable us to not have to be a specialist, not have to have money, not have to haul in a lot of supplies, not have to yell at somebody in power? What are the simple tools? So these simple tools that I came up with that I speak about in detail in the book and also sort of really go into the the emotional and the intellectual transformations that people undergo when they use them, um, it, it's about, it's things we already have in our possession, but people normally think about using them when we are dealing with people in our lives. And this is about dealing, using them when we deal with places. Okay. And what are the tools? The first, the, the first one is go to, a, go to a wounded place. And the, the metaphor that I often use is, like, if you have a friend who's ill, hopefully you don't just say, well, she's ill, she's confined to her bed, uh, we can't do the things we used to do, so goodbye, she's not my friend anymore. We would uh, go to her bedside and sit with her and say, Tell me about your life now. Let me tell you about my life. And, and I also would like to tell you that I feel really sad that this has happened to you. So it's going to the place. Meditating, is, meditating on a wounded place is great, but it's not, there's, it's not anything compared to actually going there. Another one is sharing stories, that everybody who goes to these places together shares their stories. What does this place mean to you? Uh, what did it mean to you before it was damaged or endangered? What does it mean now? 
um, looking, for, just sitting and gazing, looking, letting the, it's kind of like absorbing the place, letting it get into you. And another one is looking for beauty, letting it emerge. Um, and then the, the sort of the ultimate one is making a gift of beauty back for the place because the places in our lives have given a great deal to us and now we get to give back. And that gift back is a simple piece of work that's created out of the materials that are already on site because it's like a way of reminding ourselves that everything we need to make beauty is already there. Great. Okay, so... Tools include going to a place, sharing stories, being with the place, sitting, observing, looking, looking for beauty, and making a gift of beauty. And I think you'll give some examples of all these as we go forward throughout the conversation today. Uh, and I'll maybe this is a good moment to share a funny thing that happened when I was reading the book, because I read a lot of books, and uh, usually I have reactions that have to do with ideas and further thoughts, sometimes emotions. But reading this this old joke from Lily Tomlin <laughs> came back to me. I don't know why, but as I thought about it later, I actually thought, man, maybe there's something there. Uh, she had this joke once, if love is the answer, can you rephrase the question for me? <laughs> <laughs> and it struck me that at first I just laughed it off, like, well, that has nothing to do with this book. But then I thought, this a Zen cone like puzzling quality about that joke because it could mean many things. And I feel that what you're doing can facilitate many things about our relationship to place and thus to, to life. And, uh, but it might also beg a critical question that we might touch on also throughout the interview, which is that in a world of very real suffering, given the extent of social inequality, given the urgency, given the fact that there are not just one or two super fun sites in the world, but at this point that the planet is literally covered um, like this incredible metastasized web of of places where there are incredible wounds. You think of photographs of the Alberta tar sands, mountaintop mining. Now we have fracking, but there's so much more. I, I glanced at a map the other day of the Great Garbage Patch, which we've known about for some years. And it turns out, I don't know how many people are aware of this, that there's not just one, that there's four Great Garbage Patches. And from the map, they all looked really big. So there's this sense that it's suddenly overwhelming. So in the face of real suffering, real, very serious problems and urgent problems for all of us, what is the role of bringing joy versus bringing solutions, healing, resisting? For example, with a mind, what's, what's the role or articulation between, between bringing joy to a place where mining has gone on versus stopping people from mining or uh, remediating the mining or what happened? That's a great question. And, and what I am proposing is in no way at all meant to substitute for something else that's already going on that's absolutely crucial. I mean, we need all the acts of resistance. We need the litigating and the writing and the teaching and the, um, and the legislating. And we, we, we need all of those. And we also need ways of creating ways of, of living now that are sustainable, like building gardens and figuring out how to build schools so they're going to be protected from extreme weather. Um, and, and in the midst of all that, there is room to do these really simple practices that I'm suggesting. And a little story, when I first started uh, thinking about all of this, I called um, the head of a wilderness organization and whom I knew slightly, and I said, when your team has been working really, really hard to save some endangered place or species, and they're, you're trying to get something passed through Congress and it doesn't work, what do you do? Do you ever take time for people to just share their, their disappointment and their stories and just maybe go to the place and say goodbye to it before it's d damaged? And he said, oh, we wouldn't want to wallow in the past. We want to go on to new things. But it, it wouldn't be wallowing. You know, these people have put so much heart and soul and energy into it. Why not just take an hour for them to share about it? Mm -hmm. 
And so I want to say that, but I also want to say that that joy is not an aim. Joy is not an aim for radical joy for hard times. It's a byproduct. And it's that it's this byproduct that comes about when we kind of leap out of our sense of isolation and separation from places that are hurt or endangered and spend time in them and get to know them and make this beauty. Joy arises from that. It arises unexpectedly and surprisingly. So maybe one other way to reframe or restate uh, some of the the nature of what of what this project is about is that it's an antidote for wounded places and it's an antidote for a very wounded society. Yeah, it's um yeah, it, I would say that's a good. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we think about some of the things people suffer from inside in society at this moment of late capitalist globalization. There's issues of landlessness, alienation, feeling disconnected, feeling disempowered. And in some ways, your work can allow all of these to be shifted. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. I, I think especially of when I think of Americans, I think of a very strange relationship to place. Americans, more than maybe any other societies, statistically move very frequently uproot easily, <laughs> we'll go, and we're a very large place, and so that has a huge impact. This work is also happening around the world, so I wonder if you've, if you've heard other examples and how this is playing out, or if you've seen differences global between different examples. You mentioned Azerbaijan, the Amazon, Bali, towns in China, uh, such different places have you seen gotten a sense of similarities or differences yeah uh, definitely and and uh, you know I, I've had that question am, as, am I as a white woman is this just my thing and so when we created the organization we deliberately wanted to make these tools not rigid you know like it has to be done in this order or doesn't count it's just like here here are some simple suggestions for how you can go and be in these places. And so we have a day in June every year called the Global Earth Exchange. And the reason it's an exchange is people are giving back to the earth, which is given to us. And uh, cultures all over have responded in such different ways. So, for example, there's a a group in Kabul, Afghanistan, of young, uh, they're called the Afghan Peace Volunteers. And they spend that day working in their permaculture garden. And there was a group, a young man in, uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa, who took his daughter's school class to a little pond, and they looked at the birds. Um, and it was a, like it's just sort of a, a pond in the middle of a freeway, you know, like a city de- housing development. And um, people in the U.S. would go to a clear-cut forest or a polluted river. And there's a woman in England who goes to historic sites where there's highways and development going through them. So it's, it's very diverse, and it's, it's created out of the relationship between the people and the place and the circumstances. And yet, one of the similarities, perhaps, is that in many places, it's a place that we wouldn't often have thought of going to. You've mentioned a couple of in the conversations before in chatting and, and during this conversation, places, I can't remember what you just said, the way you just said it, but in the middle of the interstate highway or places in between places and places that seem unpleasant or too sad or something. And yet there's this quality of reframe around seeing that in a very different way. In the in the book, at some point, without giving too much away, towards the beginning, you talk about how a friend says, oh, let's, shall we go to this mining site? And you say, okay. And suddenly, as a reader, it's very compelling. You think, oh, yeah, I would want to go see that. And, and what does it look like looking at things from that point of view? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it, there's an emotional thing that happens, too. And one of the stories that I think I tell in the book is that there was a friend of mine who was having a lot of problems in his family, and his daughter had recently tried to commit suicide, and he lived in Colorado where they are, the trees are very, very dry from the drought, and that means there's a pine beetle that's infecting them, and so they're, they're like dub, doubly hit. And so he went and took a walk around there, um, feeling all this grief about his family, and grief about the land, 
And he started collecting wildflowers as he was walking around and made a simple little bouquet on a burned trunk because there'd recently been a fire there. I didn't mention that. And he wrote me this little note and said, you know, isn't it wonderful to know that nature doesn't judge my family and nature doesn't judge the trees and doesn't even judge the pine bark beetle? Um, it just is. And that no matter what state I'm in, I can always make beauty. And I thought it was such a beautiful, simple way of expressing um, how there is, it's not, it's the, the intention is to go and make beauty for the place, but something happens within the human heart as well. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how you got started with the, the conception of uh, not just book, but project? And offering this, offering this reframe that you saw in that beautiful phrase, waste is an orphan from the cycle of life, and that first times that you practiced going to a place, how did you, how did it come to you, or when did it come to you? Was it, it also a long time It ago? was a lot of experimentation. You know, I was at a conference once, and um, there was a, it was in Virginia, and there was an area nearby, 14,000 acres had recently burned. And the first night at the conference, they said, well, we have one free afternoon. Would anybody like to volunteer to lead a program? So I shot my hand up on the air and said, we'll go to the forest. So about a dozen people went. I'd never done it before. I didn't know if it was going to work. There was a part of me. I'd led wilderness rites of passage programs, but we all got to this forest, and you couldn't even sit down because it was so sooty. And I just went, what if somebody freaks out and it, like, it triggers something and somebody has some kind of a breakdown? But I just did what I always do and said, go out and spend an hour looking around and see how nature talks. So that was one thing. I led a ceremony in New York after September 11th, and it was at that that I first got the idea of asking everybody to make a gift of beauty for the place within one week. So there was a guy who made lasagna for his fire department because they'd lost several... Uh, firefighters in the towers and somebody put poems on the lampposts and somebody was going to go and uh, adopt a cat or a dog from somebody who had been lost. So um, that was the first clue to that. So I kept getting like little clues about what was important. It didn't happen all at once by any means. Mm -hmm. Doesn't surprise me that it happened over time. It's very creative and it's, it's very unusual and I obviously you cite a lot of people in the book, uh, different influences, and one thinks of people like Joanna Macy and others who have done some kinds of similar work. But it's very unique. It's a very unique project. I thought maybe I would reflect back to you a few of my perceptions about what's so significant about this and see if it resonates. Is that okay? Sure. So just three things I thought of. So one thing I thought about this that I find really significant and unique is that it has a tendency to revitalize local agency, local leadership, the spirit of direct democracy. We talk a lot about the value and the, and the imperative of direct democracy, but how can it not be a dry thing over there, but something that we organically stand up and begin working with? Uh, so it awakens these. It also... I think helps people see places again as commons. After centuries of private property regimes, we've become so used to seeing places as not ours. And so to go to places that are wounded and, and reignite that sense of deep relationship is something very important. And then in some ways it connects these last two pieces, for example, reconnecting women with land um, and a lot of, environmental leadership in recent years has happened by women, movements like Idle No More, all kinds of uh, social and environmental movements, and this is a, a way to make that very visceral. I also think it it ha would have a tendency to ignite communal, communal spirit and perhaps even help people to think about ideas, have insights and epiphanies about real problems that they may not have had otherwise, just by the sheer fact of being there and engaging. And the third part I thought I'd mention is the artistic, creative aspect. I think it's, it's we tend to see all the different areas of human life and creativity in some, in some sense separate, but in a way, 
artistry and creativity is, is our most fundamental power, strength. You know, Ursula Le Guin called imagination our very greatest tool, and other people have agreed. And so in a way, I think this could, could spur people to think creatively about some of the most urgent issues in the world. Do you, do you find any of those? Thank you. Yeah, that's really great. And I, I, what, I'll just start off with, uh, with the creativity bit. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we suggest that people make these acts of beauty out of materials that they find on site is to remind everyone that we all have the power to create. And you don't have to be a kind of like, quote, artist, where you have to haul in stuff like ribbons and sage and paint and, you know, ropes and this and that, that everything that you need to create is right there. And it's also a way of reminding ourselves that the beauty is inherent in an individual as well. And, um, and, the, and, and one of the suggestions that we made in the very beginning is if you can't think of anything to make, if you can't think of an act of beauty, and it could be infinite, of course, make a bird. And some of these birds are really funny looking. You know, they're enchanting and weird and silly, but, but they are created by everybody. And that's very important. So, and there's something magical that happens in that act of giving to a place. It's like the place comes alive in a really kind of astonishing and mysterious way. And that you mentioned at one point in the book, early on, some of your own internal hesitations, maybe long before you'd started the project. Remember, you said something like, am I being too mystical? (laughs) Am I being too metaphorical, too creative in a way? And uh, that's also an extraordinary thing in in and of itself is to, from our mechanistic modernity and the effort to help us more fully break free from that kind of consciousness have a reminder of a more a more animated worldview a worldview that's maybe more mystical or that sees more potentiality in things um yeah and i was you know i grew up feeling like i was a weirdo <laughs> and that my ideas were too weird and nobody was going to like them and um and so th- what a- another reason why I think it's important to keep all of these steps really simple, and well, I won't even call them steps, I'll call them tools, because steps implies you have to do one, two, three, four, five, uh, is that they, they can be very meaningful if somebody is a mystic, or and we've had lots of people of several different religions participating in these things, and they can also be relevant if you're a, if you're a professor or if you're a child. Like many children have created some wonderful events. Uh, or if you're a scientist. Like we've had scientists working at Palmer Station in Antarctica participating. So it's, um, it's relevant no matter what your mystical or non-mystical or logistical bent is. I even went so far as to thinking, and tell me if you think this is crazy, that just as the way basic science advances, basic science is about not having a specific applied research aim that you want to create a technology or such, but rather experimenting and pushing forward the the boundaries of knowledge. And scientists, uh, natural scientists talk about how this is a way that incredible discoveries are made all the time that would never have been made because you wouldn't have thought to go look for them. It's It's in the nature of the beast, the word discovery itself. And when it comes to grappling with really challenging, profound problems today, in many ways we, we, we might all have our ideas and theories and strategies, but there is a kind of a novelty about it. And so I almost started to make a parallel in my mind that combining this kind of local agency, thinking along the lines of direct democracy and creativity could be similar in a parallel way could help people allow people to have epiphanies and connections with them between themselves and um, and with the place that could be fundamental to our future that could perhaps be extremely important to the way we need to change society yeah and and to go back to that story I told about the man who was on the um, the walk in the forest and left the flowers in that 
concept that he came up with, like, the earth doesn't judge my family. He felt really relieved by that he, because as you have a parent and you have a ch- kid who's really troubled, there's a lot of guilt and shame and anxiety, and he felt he felt more like a part of the whole with that. And that kind of thing happens a lot with people because you go to these damaged places and you, you're, you're there to like give beauty back, but there's an emotional connection that's happening within as well. And that's important. And there's something about giving giving that gift of creativity and giving beauty and um, compassion and sorrow for a place, it's, it's also like there's a mirroring back, so you're feeling it in yourself as well. It's suddenly occurring to me, maybe halfway through this podcast, something that seems very obvious on the face of it, uh, which is that it's also about reconnecting with nature, that <laughs> so many people are so based in offices and infrastructure <laughs> infrastructural places today, that the quintessential fact that nature heals human beings, and this has been proved in all kinds of scientific research, that nature heals, that wilderness therapy works, and and that's a whole other discussion in a way. But your work also does that. It takes people out into the world away from constructed spaces, let's say. And nature exists everywhere. Right. You know, right. <laughs> nature is, nature is um, in a city, it's, it's a little tree that grows up in the middle of the sidewalk. Right. You know, it's grass coming through a crack. It's birds that make their nests in, on, on top of bridges. You know, it's everywhere. In, a, in the inner city, it's the, the, the lot, the vacant lot where, the build, where a building came down. Right. I mean, even now in the Anthropocene, where we're headed towards 50% of people living in cities, we're more and more aware of the details of that. Even, of course, this room, the synthetic materials around us are created, but crafted by humans out of materials from the earth. <laughs> so, um, And it's, a, it's partly about that reframe to uh, get past the mundane, banal, wilderness debates of 20, 30 years ago that you don't have to go to a national park to be in nature, uh, but rather that, well, as we're increasingly surrounded, not by Yosemites, but by fracking sites, how do we transform our relationship with place and especially with each other and with our ideologies and our institutions that are causing that, which maybe is a good segue to get back a little bit into some of the challenging questions about the nature of what we're facing today. Obviously, your work has laid this groundwork. It's inspired lots of people. It's created very uh, simple and yet elaborate structures and possibilities because, as you say, the tools are free and they're everywhere. And it's partly about just taking back our own creativity. And given that we have this incredible toolkit, I do have a... few questions along the lines of, of challenges. And one of them would be, how does your work empower or go to the poorest, most marginalized people of the world, or how could it? Partly because if we think about relationship, we know also from decades of environmental justice research that the poorest people live by far statistically more in more of the wounded places and vice versa um, by uh, societal design, sadly. And so how do we get, how do we start to get at underneath this, at the root problem of this? Is there any way so far that you feel that your work has touched the world's poorest, most disenfranchised, or could it? I would love for it to do more of it. You know, it's really, it's really important and it's essential. And the way it's happened so far is we did a program in 2015 called The Ground Beneath Our Hearts. Mm -hmm. And we gave a little bit of money to 10 communities around the world from Azerbaijan to California to create a day of of beauty to express not just the suffering. These these were communities that are severely impacted by mining and uh, mineral extraction. So the idea was to create a day of, of education and beauty and music to express not just how you hurt on these places, but how much you love your place. And when they're, all the stories were incredibly touching. And uh, one of them was a community in the Colombian Amazon. 
And this woman who's a fierce activist, I mean, she didn't even want us to mention her real name because she was, you know, she's afraid of the repercussions. But uh, she got together a bunch. Well, so, so what's going on in their community is that it's been just destroyed by gold mining. And uh, the fish are uh, dead because of the pollution in the rivers. Young girls are sent out to be prostitutes. Uh, she got these young people together, you know, like 14, 15 years old. And they, she taught them traditional dances and songs. And they went up into the woods and they cut the right kind of fiber to make their costumes. And they loved learning these dances. So it was like getting back in touch with something that was really important to them. And in the midst of this, it, it didn't solve the problem. It didn't make the gold miners go away. It didn't clean up the river. But it gave these young people a sense of, of, of their ancestry, their past, their ability to transcend it, their ability to do something powerful and beautiful together. All the community came out to watch. So that kind of thing is possible. And there's somebody I really want to talk to at Pioneers when I go there tomorrow who, who I, is going to be exactly about that question you just asked. That's so that's a beautiful story, and I'm sure all ten of those stories are are beautiful and um, and we can't um, obviously, if people knew anyone who could resolve poverty or end mining tomorrow would get ten or a hundred Nobel Peace prizes right it's 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 a big big thing um, I did. We had Climate Action Week here a few weeks ago, and one of the events was an environmental film festival that focused on films in places where people were coping with coal mining. It was very touching. The films were creative. They were very well done. They were very interesting. But it really showed you. It showed you what television could be like. Imagine if we could see these things on television every night, um, reflecting some of our greatest battles and some of the beauty that could be found in transforming them. What could that be like? Uh, Several of the stories obviously didn't end well. They ended with people ultimately being so um, burdened by the coal mining and the toxicity and the illness and the way that it it destroys uh, food security or any food source and clean water, and eventually people just completely pushed off their land. So, But another thing that comes up to me as you're saying that story is that we never know the full ripple effects of certain events. And whenever someone's getting at really core, significant issues like that, like the person at that place, she herself, a leader from that place, designing this project, bringing back ancient dance and inspiring, instilling pride and beauty and motion and all kinds of things that are known to uplift. We can't know the full, the full impact, but it could lead to extraordinary things. Yeah, and I think of Radical Joy for Hard Times sometimes as like a splash. You know, like there's a, there's a metaphor that people use a lot. You throw a stone in the pool and you don't know where the ripples are going to go. And, but Radical Joy for Hard Times is like that splash. You know, it's, the stone goes down to the depths and this geyser of silvery water comes out. And that's the point. It's that first thing. It's the impact. And, and you do it for the same reason that you would help somebody across the street who was old or the same reason that you would hug your friend or, or the same reason that you would just stop and look at the sunset. It's, you don't ask yourself, well... Is this going to have a positive effect on my life? Is this, am I going to be able to measure my success from this? No, it's just like it has to be done in the moment. It's crucial. It's, it's compelling. And so you do it, and, and that's the reason. And then if there are ripples, it's not up to you to know them. I love the image of the splash. It gets across the radical fun as long as the radical joy. Well, following along the line of question, if we were to... Focus more explicitly on on climate change and the climate disaster. Do you know if some of your projects have focused more directly on climate change per se? Well, climate change is um, there's a philosopher named Timothy Morton, whose books I love, and uh, they're complicated, but he's just a wild guy, and he has a term called hyperobjects, and hyperobjects he, he names climate change as one of these. 
Um, that is, he says it's viscous, it sticks to you, but you can't really see it, you can't peel it off. It's everywhere, but you can't necessarily point to it. And, uh, and so what I am more interested in than climate change in its big sense is how climate change affects us in our lives, whether it's the fires or the, the, torn, the um, hurricanes that they're having in the southeast or the fact that there aren't any honeybees in the east anymore. And uh, so the, the effects that it's having, the lack of songbirds, um, that is, those are the kinds of climate change issues that we have to deal with and live with in our communities. I notice when I look at the map of your project on the online website, there's an interactive map with little dots or arrows where people are doing different projects. And one of them in this region that showed up was in a Santa Rosa or nearby. And it was about the fire saying that they were planning to do some kind of ceremony around the wildfire from last year. And it did strike me that in a way this can be a catalyst for full systems or cyclic thinking and action about issues. Many people in California are still feeling stunned from the relative novelty of the, the magnitude of wildfires the last couple of years, and, and it just can't sink in. It's, sort of, it's too big, right? But by getting to, we, we do know from a lot of examples that by just getting together with local people and doing something, that also often allows us to take the next steps. We know this from a lot of different kinds of examples like Rob Hopkins' transition town movements where people get together to build resilience in their town in various ways. And I think this this could facilitate something similar with, with things like the the spread of mega wildfires, et cetera. Yeah, there was a woman at the event I did just last night, in fact, who, who lost her home in the wildfire near Santa Rosa. And she told this story about how she rides her bicycle up into that land every day. And she finds other people who have lost their homes and they sit together and they cry together and they share their stories. And she said to me, does that count? Like, is that radicals very hard times? And I said, oh my gosh, absolutely. You know, but they're crying. It so does. It's sharing stories. So what is the relationship between the crying and the joy here? Well, you can't, somebody asked me a few days ago in an interview, so tell us about how you replace the grief with the joy. <laughs> And I said, I don't think you can. It's about holding them both in your, in your hands. It's like grief is one and beauty or joy is, is the other one. It's like they're two little feathers. And they're both in your, in your possession at any time, especially when you're dealing with these really hard times. And uh, so a story from my life was with the organization Radicals Away for Hard Times, we did a program in 2010 around the BP oil spill, which had just stopped. And we created a day called Gulf Coast Rising and invited people all around the Gulf Coast to have a day of generosity for people in the land. And I was uh, making a labyrinth with a few women in on Grand Isle, which is this long, skinny isle that faces directly out into the Gulf. And while we were there, a pod of dolphins came and started leaping right outside the seawall. And we ran over to the seawall to look at them and we were so happy to see these beautiful, you know, these play dolphins. They're so playful. And, you know, they come up in the air and they go down. And they're like they're making these arcs in the water and the sky. And then at the same time, there's this realization that their habitat is toxic from the oil and from the dispersants. And so we felt this terrible sense of sorrow for their future and their, what they're swimming in. And at the same time, there was this joy about seeing them so close to us and in the midst of us trying to make beauty for the Gulf. And so it was like saying they, that you can't, you can't replace grief with joy. And you can't replace, you can't cover up joy with grief. They, they're kind of both there. And if you're willing to go down into the darkness and just sit there with it, it doesn't, it doesn't blow you away as we often think it will. It's like it allows us to sit in a dark place and be open to these shafts of light that just pierce it and give us surprise and joy and beauty and compassion in all kinds of startling ways. It sounds very important. And Another thing I'm curious about along those, along those lines is these tours you've done, 
how did that come about? And could that be uh, one way for the organization to think about connecting with the root causes of some of our greatest ills or more direct resistance or more direct acts of solidarity or, or whatever the case may be. If, if our aim is to, to bring joy to places and then to also take steps towards the deep work to, to fight, to heal, to change, to transform. It strikes me that the tours you've done are an incredible tool because one of the things about our situation is that people feel separated, isolated, to some extent blind to what's going on. But what you do by creating a tour, taking people to a place, is completely take the blinders off. And as you say, activate people in a very visceral way that you would never happen sitting in an office back home. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, I really don't do tours. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where we invite communities and p- individuals to do it in their own way. Okay, but I'm not a leader of it. But haven't you done both? Because, the, for example, the story at Ground Zero, just to yeah. clarify. Um, and maybe That was like a ceremony. I thought that okay. was a ceremony. But, but I think it's very important to stress that this is really about individuals and communities doing in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not having it imposed upon by me or anybody else. Like, yes, I would like to do workshops. You know, I would like to, it, we, we're, we have plans with Radicals Who Have a Hard Times, the organization, to like get involved with more students and others. But it's um, like somebody might want to go and make beauty for a tree, just as right. an individual. And right. another community might want to go and, um, you know, sit at a, wet, at a wetland where a mall is going to come in. So right. it's really individual. I, that's really helpful clarification. I'm glad you brought up those points. It strikes me as a very yes and or both and situation that, that both can be extremely valuable. I think many of us who have some kind of relative privilege and have had careers or lives that have been very, very enmeshed with efforts for justice have lots of stories about privileged people going into places that are less privileged and things going awry very quickly. And so I love that you are clarifying that, that this uh, one of the intrinsic structure of is, is for people to decide what to do in their own place. But I agree with you, or I think from what I'm hearing, that there's also a place for people to very proactively create things and invite others to join and, and build coalitions. And we very much need that as well. Yeah, definitely. And so you, you have a foot in both, it sounds like. Yeah, which is very powerful. Do you have any other favorite stories you want to tell? I know you've got a lot, and uh, I love the ones you've shared so far. Well, just one that pops into my mind was um, this year um, for the Global Earth Exchange, this annual event we do in June, there was a woman in North Carolina who had an event called Grilled Cheese and Guys Ford. (laughs) And it was a uh, it was a boat put in at a river, and it, it had gotten very popular over the years, and um, and lots of people it was getting trashed, and there was a lot of ru- ru- rubbish around, and the plants were being trampled. And she went down there with a friend, and they made grilled cheese sandwiches for all the people that came in, and then they educated them about how to take care of the place, and um, they 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 fed them, and then they got them to clean up the litter. <laughs> and I just thought it was such a, a wonderful, sort of creative, ordinary way of engaging with the community in a very, in a particular way in a particular place. I mean, there, there's there's so many stories, as you say. And, and another thing that I would just add, which is common to many stories, is that people will often write to us after they've done something like this and they say, I fell in love with the place. There was a woman who does a bunch of things around Salt Lake City, and she did one at a quarry once. And she said, now every time I pass by, I wave at a loving hello, because it has a different kind, it has a familiarity now. Mm -hmm. It gives us a whole different map of where we live when when we get involved in this way. I know for myself, I know the San Francisco Bay Area. I know a little bit of the tourist overlay, that part of the map. When friends or family come to town, I take them to the beautiful places and the special places, Coit Tower and Ocean Beach. But because I am involved in my career in these things, I go to all the other places. So, for example, I had a friend who was going to be teaching a class on energy and climate change. 
and wanted to bring the students on a class trip to some specific sites around the Bay Area having to do with energy and climate change. And so we went to scope out a site in, near Nevada City, the Malakoff Diggins Gold Mine. I'm sorry, not gold mine, but mine from uh, it, quite some decades now and has been since regrown and covered over. And it looks pretty beautiful, actually, until you start to really look and see what had happened to the landscape. And on the way back down, we stopped at the Yuba River and learned that the coloration of the Yuba, which is very beautiful, it has a lot of large, very smooth rocks that are very light colored white. And actually, those light colors came from bleaching of, of some of the chemicals that were used in the mines that washed down the river that was so thick wow. and heavy at the time that it literally <laughs> bleached out the whole river. Uh, and so it has these multiple qualities to it. When I go, when I think of Nevada City, I think of that place. And it is beautiful today. Um, but then many places are, are in the throes of uh, the worst cycle of transformation right now. They're in the orphan phase and very, very badly so. Uh, and, and endangered. So, endangered. And, and yet, so there, there was another woman to this thing I did last night, and she said she met a guy in Las Vegas who teaches at the University of Las Vegas, teaches geology. She said, how can you live in this place? And, and she said, he said, oh, I just stand in the middle of the strip and I can feel the desert vibrating beneath my feet. and that's part of it it's uh, allowing permitting inviting ourselves to reattune in various ways um we are also uh, you mentioned several places in the book having had significant experiences and learned significant things uh, visiting the navajo and i think other reservations we're on a whole continent that of course has always been indigenous land for many thousands of years. And so in a way, this conversation is, is about that cycle coming full circle. Of course, you learned from a man from the Oneida tribe with original quote of waste being an, an orphan in the cycle of life. I wonder if you've given the origin of that quote and a lot of, a lot of the influence of your work. How has that impacted your work? Have, has your... Have your thoughts about that changed over the years or evolved? Yeah, they've changed a lot. Um, for one thing, I thought in the originally I thought it was going to be all about giving back to the earth, and that it would just sort of I don't know. I mean, that humans weren't going to going to have that much of a you know it wouldn't be that much of an emotional transition for humans. And I quickly began to learn that there is a lot of our own insecurity and wounding that is met with when we go to these places and in the act of doing this work, giving these gifts, healed. And it's really not about healing a place. I do not claim that radical joy for hard times can heal a place, but it, it definitely heals the relationship between a person and a place. And I'll just add a little footnote about David Paulus, the man, that, the Oneida man. Um, he is really excited about all of this. I dedicated the book to him. And he just loves it that his adventure with the steel waste has ended up in this. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, he, sh- he and you should be very, very happy with this accomplishment. I'm excited to uh, and want to get involved with your organization. And, Good. and I also think along the lines of the role of indigenous people in being on the front lines of many uh, battles to resist corporate corporatization and mining and fracking and oil pipelines, et cetera, et cetera. I'm also always very compelled when I look at the global picture of what people are doing around things like climate change and other earth systems disruptions, that many people in very poor places around the world completely get these issues better sometimes than people in enclosed enclaves and kind of digital, uh, you know, um, bubbles of various kinds. And so, for example, with the organization I've been involved with, 350, uh, 350.org, and I don't can't tell the story exactly the same way, but I know some of the, the people running the national, international campaigns have told stories about how places in countries that where there's very little resources and maybe not too much education, 
someone will say, I'm going to hold a climate rally on this international climate rally day. One woman at one point apparently apologized and said, I can't do it that day. There's something going on in my town, but I, but, and I'm really sorry about that, you know, but I'll do it the day before or something or the week before or something. And, and then they got the photos from the event. She had held it the week before. This was in a small village. I can't remember exactly where. I think it was Northern Africa, maybe Ethiopia. And 20,000 people came. <laughs> and you realize that in some ways our framing is all backwards. And, and really so much of the world understands profoundly what needs to be done and is looking for, looking for ways to help just actualize, to help us just do that, to make the changes. Yeah, and I have a friend who's from Haiti, and she comes to northeastern Pennsylvania to teach pottery every summer. And uh, she said to me once, well, we know, we know exactly how to make beauty in Haiti, and you'll see coffee cans with little soil and some flowers in it on people's windowsills. And it's a very, very, very poor country, and they've had all kinds of social problems, environmental problems, political problems. Mm-hmm. And she said, we just know how to do it because you have to. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of irony there. And I know we don't have too much time left. I guess uh, my last question would be, what would you like to see next for this project and for people who want to do this? I would like to see it be um, a habit. I would like to see people just going to these places and pausing. You know, you don't, you don't have to spend an hour there. You don't have to spend even half an hour, but just to pause and, like, say, I see you. I see that you're not what you used to be, and maybe you've given a lot and you can't give it anymore, and I'm just going to do something small for you. Like, I'll leave a flower, or I'll, or I'll bow, or I'll sing a little song, or I'll just sort of close my eyes in, in observation. And I think if, if everybody, if that was a practice, you know, like we pick up litter on the street now, or we help a person who's crippled across the street, it, if that were a practice, that would be a wonderful thing, and the world would change, because, we, because all places, like all people, belong. It strikes me, when you're talking about that, that it's almost the perfect uh, reply for so many people because I think so many people learn a lot about a lot of issues or even a little bit about the big issues around climate disruption, acidification of the oceans, dead zones in the oceans, the, the different ramifications of warming things happening very fast. Of course, sea level rise. And any one of these is so overwhelming, so potentially paralyzing, uh, hurricanes, wildfires, etc. But so I think you're absolutely right. If the habit would be the small steps, then together maybe that would add up to helping us really catapult towards these larger systemic changes we need. And just because I know we both have spent time in Bali, for anyone who knows Bali, Indonesia, I got this image, the Balinese ceremonially offer gifts to nature, gift to spirit every day. They carry around rice trays and they'll often offer flowers, incense, other things systematically. And so when you mentioned the, the, the offering, just simple things, offering a flower, offering a bit of food, I immediately thought of that and thought that's where this kind of systemic change, we don't know how far things can go, but if someone has a practice, even the smallest practice, and it becomes habitual, it can, I think, really shift our, the way we think and feel and see things. And the Balinese also give things to the, you know, the not just to the gods, but to the, the to the darker spirits as well. You know, it's uh-huh. not beautiful flowers. It's maybe a little bit of rotten meat, and you put it on the ground <laughs> because they recognize the importance of that balance. Right, right, and which may have a connection to the fact, in fact, it it does, that they have one of the most successful agricultural systems in the world, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, because it's been so ecologically successful for such an amazingly long time. Um, So that's one example that that having both been there and having that connection, among other things, we could suggest people look at. I'm incredibly inspired by this conversation. I have to say, I thought that I would just remain... even more skeptical because we have to address the root problems and we have to change the world. But I think you're 
you're onto something really big here. I want to really give you a big thanks. Thank you so much. And thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Love the conversation. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.